pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Dark Waters is the new film from Todd Haynes, and it's a change of pace from his last feature, Wonderstruck, and much of his other work generally. Dark Waters is a whistleblower drama about Rob Ballot, a lawyer who began investigating the chemical company DuPont, which his own firm was doing business with. To discuss the movie, contributing editor Amy Taubin sat down with Haynes for an extended interview. They cover the challenges of making political work today, the connections Dark Waters has with his previous films, details from shooting the movie, and more. Let's go to the conversation. I'm Amy Taubin, a contributing editor for Film Comment, and I'm here in Brooklyn in this lovely post-production house with Todd Haynes, and we're going to talk about his new film, Dark Waters, which opens November 22nd in New York. So, Todd, this is a really amazing film, and I was, I've was i been talking to some of your old friends about it, and they've asked me lots of questions about it, um, and I said, they might be surprised, although I wasn't. And they said, well, is it like poison? Is it like safe? And I said, well, it is a film about the way the body is in Jep, but it's a very different film. So would you like to speak to the differences, or maybe you don't think it's different? Well, I do think it's certainly different. Um Although I might see more differences among all my films than some people who put them into certain kinds of categories might do. Um, And I like to feel, for instance, people will say, Carol, it's so, yeah, it's like Far From Heaven. And I find them to be so utterly different. You know, they're female-driven stories set in the 1950s. And to me, the similarity sort of end there. And so for me, each time I take a project on it, I look for things that challenge me and continue to sort of school me or that I feel like I'm still learning and still trying things out. Um, And as I've shifted from stuff that I've just developed myself to things that are written and developed from without, that in and of itself has been incredibly rewarding and interesting process. Um, and at times confusing with things that I am at the same time developing myself. The timetable of things that you develop yourself is much different from the ones that sometimes come at you. And this film came with such sort of lightning speed from the original short story that initiated it in the New York Times in 2016 by Nathaniel Rich to when it first came to me and to, to where we are now. But, um, but I do, there are, there are thematic things that I definitely see link up to my other films. And, and, but maybe not 
as literally as issues about chemicals that were explored in SAFE or, um, you know, people standing up in their own voices in some of the films about musical artists I've done, um, people who aren't, who, who, who find their voice, I guess you might say, or have found it or have multiple voices as I've depicted in some of the artists I've, I've made films about. Um, this one, this one I do feel is, is so interesting the way, what happens to people who stand up to power. I mean, this guy, Rob Billet. Balot. Balot. Yeah. yeah. Is, uh, I should know that because it's said many times in the film, <laughs> uh, the central character in the film, um, is a lawyer working on uh, the corporate side. He defends corporations at a very big law firm. Exactly. And he becomes a whistleblower when something comes his way that becomes personal because right. he knows the people involved. Right. So do you want to talk a little bit about your feeling about whistleblowers, particularly yeah. standing up to power? Sure. Yeah, I think the thing that particularly uh, compels me about these kinds of movies, especially certain examples, which we can get into, um, is that they're almost as much about, if not almost, or if not exclusively about, um, the cost of telling the truth, the human cost. Um, in, in some ways, almost the stigma that's attached to the truth teller in society. And of course, what happens when power pushes back. But most of these movies and the ones I'm thinking about are, are obvious and well-loved examples from the Pakula films of the 70s, particularly culminating in All the President's Men. Um, Silkwood by um, Mike Nichols, uh, Michael Mann's The Insider, where there's, you know, incredible peril that's put on these individuals as they uncover stories. And in a weird way, what you think, what you imagine would accompany a kind of righteous discovery of corporate abuses of power and the drive to do something about it, whether you're a journalist or a lawyer or a worker in a plutonium plant uh, fighting for workers' rights, uh, one imagines that that emboldens you and, you, and, it, and it, it makes you mad and that propels the discovery process and the investigative process and the process that is played out in a legal strategy or in corroborating stories in a newspaper. But uh, something else goes on at the same time that almost shrinks the worlds that these people occupy as the stories get bigger. Do you mean they lose their friends and they, they lose, lose their, their friends. support system? Exactly. And that what comes to mind to me when I think about these films that have inspired me that I have an almost compulsive relationship to in some of their cases, mm -hmm. watching them again and again, like all the President's Men or the Parallax View, or, is that, you know, the images that come to mind are usually individuals alone, 
in big corporate spaces or industrial spaces or public spaces. Obviously, Robert Redford underground at the parking garage with Deep Throat. Uh, there is a parking garage seen a, in this film. A, a very a different looking parking garage, but it was our sort of uh, homage in some way, our tipping the hat to that, although it came from an, an actual literal event. And, and very scary. And scary and true uh, from what Rob described. But, uh, but, you, but these are the images that whether they're, whether they're framed by Gordon Willis's sort of restrained and elegant cinematography in some of those films or in the kind of lurking, floating camera of Michael Mann and The Insider where you're seeing Russell Crowe sort of floating out of a corporate lobby with the reflected light on the marble floors and the, the, the scant looks of people he passes. Uh, these are the images that kind of hang past and beyond and in and around the actual, you know, reporting that's going on. What the vessel of the Jeffrey Wigand character is carrying around about the tobacco industry as a scientist who's been fired from Brown and Williamson. Um, we get to that, but there's an incredible sense of foreboding and doom and pain that hangs over that movie almost in this it's it's so it almost becomes abstract at times and you know uh you sort of lose weight what is what 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 is it what what is the thing he's gonna tell us and you feel the pain more than you you really rec almost recall the specifics of it anyway those are those are the images that sort of propel me and that's why that sense of isolation that trial that these people undergo is so basic to the genre so it's Mark Ruffalo who came to you with this project? Yeah. Mark came to me in, I think everyone descended on Mark Ruffalo and participant media when that article broke in the New York Times, fitting into things that he'd been engaging in in, in his political life. And, and we should say probably at this point that the lawyer, who's played by Mark Ruffalo, who he goes into this David and Goliath battle with is DuPont. Yes, and, the power, uh, yeah. the power that he takes on. And DuPont is, um, well, I'll let you say it because it so ties in with so many uh, things in your films that, yes, there is a sense of, well, this was really terrible for a community and a place, and then you realize that it's much bigger than that because of this particular uh, never die chemical right. that's in all our blood. I mean, that's the killer in the yeah, film. it is. And the ubiquity of it globally, what you learn by the end of the film, starts to put it on a different register. That doesn't diminish anything. <clears throat> it, of course, it underscores the severity of the the malfeasance, the the the. the knowing contamination of water systems and air systems for decades by DuPont. This is the chemical PFOA, which they renamed C8, that's used in the production of Teflon. And, of course, these chemicals are created within labs, within these corporate uh, campuses, 
that no one has access to and our regulatory system exempts from scrutiny or oversight. So uh, there aren't even scientists who even know what the name of the chem what the chemical means when Rob Balot first encounters the, the results of it, the contamination that begins on a, a farm, a cattle farm by a farmer, a rural farmer in West Virginia who neighbors uh, a farm that he visited as a kid. Uh, and rarely, he was an army brat, so he moved around constantly, so he was rarely would return to where his grandmother lived in Parkersburg, West Virginia. And he has very fond memories of this farm that just happens to neighbor Wilbur Tennant's farm. And in the years between Rob's childhood and when he, when Wilbur walks into the Taft offices in this movie, at the beginning of the story, in the 98, 1998 portion of the story, um, DuPont had bought up land that was part of the tenant's original property and created a landfill that they began dumping um, toxic sludge into from this chemical. I mean, what is amazing about the film for me is its clarity and there is there are so many layers of information that are uncovered by Rob, but organized in the film in a way that you never feel. And this is where not safe, not poison, right. not uh, superstar, the Karen. You never feel that you're in a classroom. You right. never feel that you are being given the lesson and it could come up on the screen in titles and all right. that, right. which is a question that's a little bit outside of what we've been talking about, which is really a, a narrative and plot. Yeah. But, you know, in the early days when you were involved in ACT UP um, and making your first films, there was... A substantial discourse around, do you have to have radical form to express radical content? And the radical content of this film is overwhelming. Um, The form is, anyone goes to a movie like this. And so I wonder something about your thinking about that and about the evolution of your thinking about that. Well, I do think it... It's <laughs> the form can apply to different kinds of movies. The form can change according to the needs and the out and the reason why you're making certain movies and who you want to connect to in the world. You know, I think in some ways I have to look existentially at my own relationship to my radical origins as a filmmaker, vis-a-vis where the world has gone from those days mm-hmm. and feel like sometimes you end up realizing you have to start taking on battles that are so primary they're almost an offense to our intelligence they are they're so basic the sort of un unwriting of you know, New Deal legislation. Now it's like unwriting of sort of robber baron legislation. We're literally unwriting a sense of a divided government right now. We're unwriting notions of science, the integrity of truth, reporting truth, and how truth is selective for your partisan interests. So 
you, it's almost alarming how much one steps back and go, wow, I like the days when I used to be able to contemplate the theories of representation. But we have some fucking serious shit to attend to right now, and there's an urgency about it. Not to say that I f still don't have ambivalence about stories, s narratives in movies that bear such a, that take on, you know, that are basically built on the idea of truth-telling. Truth is a precarious sort of idea in the world of movies. And the more directly it's presented, the more we have reason to be suspicious about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think these kinds of stories, when they're rooted in a kind of pain, when they're rooted in the unexpected voice and sight of a subject like Rob Balot, who starts on the other side of the, of the cultural, financial, corporate spectrum, um, and how, how heartbreaking the outcome is, that it leaves us all with a sense of, of a complex uh, outcome. And in many ways, it puts us puts it back into our hands as to how you live your life doing everything Rob Lott did and succeeded in doing and still having the corporate power fighting back and challenging him at every turn, which continues to this day. Mm -hmm. You know, the film doesn't end with the slam dunk of some other whistleblower movies that are just much more sort of family entertainment and feel that kind of sense of, yeah, we won out and you get the car at the end or the settlement check and everybody's happy. This ends with a lot of, uh, with a lot of gray area. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yes, and all along the way, there are contradictions built into every character yeah. And every scene. I mean, yeah. this is a very uneat beyond the fact that we are all being poisoned. Right. Um, this is a very uneasy movie yeah. about personal relationships, about yeah. your professional responsibilities, right. all of that. Yeah, the tidiness of the people fighting against DuPont and where they came from and who they're... That speech that often generates applause in the middle three quarters of the way through the movie that Tim Robbins gives to his partner saying to hell with them. He's really just arguing, mm -hmm. even though he's learned a tremendous amount about what's capable, what these companies that he's been defending can, is cap are capable of. He's still basically arguing for business practices mm -hmm. to be redeemed by a sense of some moral or ethical kind of articulation of the limits of how far you're going to go to defend industry. And so it's, 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 a, it's a squirmy speech. And yet it generates... And then it's just after... Uh, William Jackson Harper, the character, the African American. Oh, poor William Jackson oh, Harper, an actor I love. Oh, he's so fantastic. Who but is, but has, he has to play the shill for the corporation. <laughs> because again, I just couldn't have him be the voice of 
challenging the system. He's somebody who spent his whole life trying to Get gain it. credibility and have a pedi- and have a you know law degree from Harvard or Yale that would get him directly plugged in to a law firm like Taft. And he was so he's such an incredibly smart guy and so cool and 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 he 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 liked that. He liked that double edge that we that we had him play in the movie. Um there was a little more of him in a longer cut. There was more of um other other parts of the story that of course in a movie this long and complicated that we had to streamline but and so would you say without giving too much away that rob begins the film with a real belief yes. in the law yeah. and even in the corporations that sure. he's defending yeah. and by the end he may have realized that the corporations uh, are indefen or DuPont in this particular case are indefensible. But what is his attitude about the law? I mean, he's such an upright lawyer. And now, I mean, to go outside this, to see the lawyer, I mean, everyone is so horrified by the judges that Trump has appointed. Sure. And this is going to change the system forever. The only reason Rob succeeded was because of the judges he came before. Without those judges, this would have been just dead at the first go. Right. And certain unbelievable events like the medical monitoring ruling Mm -hmm. in West Virginia Mm -hmm. that made it possible to establish, to set up a legal scrutiny that would establish potential risks of an unregulated chemical on human health. That's a radical cl- ruling for West Virginia, even for California. And it just happened to have been passed a year before he needed it. But no, he, he you know, yes, he, he believed in regulation. He was basically occupied 24-7 with Superfund legislation at the be- when we first fought meet him. This becomes an incredible financial boost to the environmental practice group at Taft Law because their companies have to pay tremendous amounts of money to resolve Superfund toxic dumping sites and, and, and figure out who's responsible and divvy up the responsibilities so that the EPA doesn't step in and do it for you. They'd rather do self-regulation, of course. And he believed there was a rational reasoned way of coming to terms with regulatory oversight and industry's needs, right? That's what he practiced every day. And that's what Tom Turp practiced every day and believed in. And they saw something in DuPont that they said they had never seen anything close to the likes of before. And that, uh, and it, and Tom Turp himself in a, when we first met, described it as a holy war, that it was a division between outrageous abuses of power. But what I think Rob learns in the process, and this is also moving politically and deregulation and the movement from, you know, through the, through the Bush administration into today's culture is a revolving door between industry and government where industries in the lead and calls the shots. So DuPont, the government is captive to DuPont and its interests. And that's only worsened since in the few years 
since we this story first broke in the New York Times. Did you ever? I never cooked with Teflon. I I said no. This is bad news. But I you knew never, that because of this story. No, when Teflon first came out. Really. I never had a Teflon pan. So how did you... And I think I read something, but I've been looking and trying to figure out how I knew or if it was just intuitive that... Well, if it was that early, it was intuitive. It would have to have been intuitive, except based on other examples by other products and industries. Exactly. Things that seem too good to be true. Yeah. Uh, that are being promoted too aggressively to the culture and that everybody seems to be addicted to all of a sudden. Uh, But I know that my suspicions about Teflon definitely lined up to when these stories first broke in the early 2000s as a result of this case. I just didn't know the source of it and the full story of it. And few people did until this article broke. Um, but, uh, yeah, good on you. <laughs> Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan, plus Rossellini's history films, streaming Adam Sandler, composer Fatima Al-Qadiri on Atlantics, and much more. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Let's talk a little bit about the production. Um, So you worked on this production with Ed Luckman, who you've worked with many times before. Yeah. And an editor who you've been working with now in the past three, four movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But you have a new production designer for this movie. Could you talk a little bit about your work with her? Yes. Hannah Beachler designed the film. And I'd seen her work in a, such a range of movies from, from Black Panther to Moonlight to Miles Ahead to, uh, yeah, a whole stream of movies that came out that she's worked on fairly quickly. Um, and uh, she's incredible. She's a, she's a power source unto herself. The amazing thing about Hannah is she grew up in farm country outside of Dayton, Ohio. And she went to college, art school or college or undergrad, I can't remember now, in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So she knew this world. This is not what you, one would necessarily have expected. She knew this world intimately. This is a very white movie about white people. <laughs> and, and she knew more about it than all of us. And... I, I was so I was so cool, and she she had stories, and she also had seen Cincinnati changing so radically over the years. And Cincinnati is where I shot Carol. My first experience there was in '94 shooting Carol, uh, 2004 shooting Carol, and uh, I loved it. I just loved the city, Cincinnati. I really dig it. It's a really interesting place. I'd first been there in the in the sort of Mapplethorpe controversy with exactly. the Contemporary That's right. Art it's Center, Cincinnati. right? Yeah. <laughs> In 89, I guess, right on the the tipping point of that whole thing, or directly after the aftermath of it, when it was somehow resolved, and it felt it felt like a felt like a old Ohio city, older than Columbus or or uh, um, Cleveland, it, which it is because it's 
southernmost and and uh and there were stores and places that felt like they hadn't changed in 20 years and i bought products from the 1960s in their original packages in this old stinky department store in cincinnati and in, in 1989 um but I, and i like that kind of thing because it's rare you know um but the city has changed a great deal and when i first because it's always also had a very strong conservative Republican kind of, you know, business class there that has sort of given its its economic lifeblood, uh, Procter and Gamble and many other Fortune 500 companies that are based in Cincinnati and for the Midwest. Um, and the first time we were there scouting for Carroll, uh, the location, the 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 Ohio Cincinnati based um, location person uh Kristen she introduced me to this this African-American guy in a coffee shop and she said oh yeah he was just the he's gay and he was just the mayor of Cincinnati I was like wow this place has changed um but uh and it's continued to and yeah so we we a lot of our talent came from Cincinnati a lot of the actors day players who you see in the movie who bring something really specific and uh and special, I think, to the movie, and who are imported actors from New York, adored, working with. Um, but um, but yeah, really, what being there meant was making a movie about this place, which was not true for Carol. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that the one thing in Carol that doesn't work for me is Cincinnati, because. <laughs> I was a child of New York, yeah. and I knew what New York looked like in the 50s. And yeah. while it doesn't look like that anymore, and you can't shoot here to right. find that, yeah. it doesn't, Cincinnati just doesn't <laughs> have the weight of yeah. those. The density. Yeah, buildings. Yeah. But this was remarkable. Yeah. Um, the use of real locations. Yeah. We shot in the actual Taft Law Office in downtown Cincinnati. And I would have picked those places. I would have picked those locations, and Hannah would have, and Ed would have, hands down from an aesthetic standpoint, were they not the actual Taft Law Offices. They had this beguiling sense of space and, and claustrophobia and this sort of sense of big surprising slats of open windows that would look out under the skyline of Cincinnati that would also be sort of segregated by architecture and then you'd see a little peek through to the view of the Ohio River um, at any given point and these those strange 45 degree corridors it's all like probably you know 80s architecture possibly 90s interior design early 90s interior design um and those triangular corporate office spaces that we that we use and we recreated the bigger one for the conference room that tim robbins is usually centerpiece in and they had those frosted glass those striped frosted glass walls right that we track across and those sort of edged windows along the top line of floating walls 
on other sides of the of the rooms, and and no real right angles. So everything was askance from everything else in this sort of destabilized sense. And then the beautiful '60s grid of architecture across the street, the minimalist sort of lines that I favor a lot in the shots that look out onto the actual skyline. I mean, one of the scenes in the film that I I have no idea why visually this stays with me so strongly, but it's a scene where um, uh, Mark Ruffalo, Rob, is in this place, I can't even figure out what it is, with all the boxes that DuPont has dumped there, thinking it will end this because he'll never be able to go through this material. Right. And it is just terrifying. Yeah. And you think, what kind of poison is in those boxes? And what's he going to breathe when he opens those boxes, even though they're just paper, old paper? Yeah. And mostly, in reality, all new paper that a firm just copied Mm -hmm. out of order. Hundreds of thousands of pages of discovery with repeated pages every five page and, you know, a kind of illogical panoply of chaos that, that again, no one could possibly have expected a single guy. And it really was Rob with his paralegal Kathleen who pummeled through that studiously page after page, organizing it, recombining it, making stacks, getting rid of the stuff that didn't make sense, and forming a narrative and a staggering back history, which they never assumed anybody would would possibly. The same way they never, the, the, the sort of hubris of it all is so, so disgusting and so typical that they never expected, and, and for good reason, that there would, ever, with the medical monitoring agreement, when they finally settled with the, cl- the large class action lawsuit that followed, that they would ever get enough samples from the class to actually establish links between the chemical exposure and illness, right? And they got 70,000 people participating in the biggest epidemiological study in human history. Now that, that's an, Again, it's another part of the sort of miraculous story and sequence of accidents that line up. Which is really um, interesting in the movie because one of the things I think is great in the way the movie is structured is that you see the many, many ways that DuPont bribes and cajoles people into taking their side, even though they poison them and their children are dying or they're born deformed or they've lost everything. And still, this total dependence on keeping the goodwill of DuPont. That's amazing in the film. And it's just kind of there, you know? It's not like... It film doesn't hit you over the head with any of those things. It's like that's the landscape right. of yes. what this is. Yeah, that was our our hope is that you would feel it because you know none of these movies leave the confining spaces that we find our whistleblowers getting with, with the walls moving in on them as they get deeper into the weeds of these corruption stories. Imagine what all the president's men would have been like if you could, if they cut away to Ehrlichman and Haldeman in the White House going, what the hell is going on with the Washington Post? We got to push back against these rookie journalists. It would have broken the tension 
in one fell swoop, right? It's about that tension that you never leave. You never see the face of power directly. You do in a couple select places in this story because he, and because he deposes the CEO of DuPont in that, and ends up in that parking garage directly afterwards. And you see Victor Garber rep, as, the, as the counsel for representing DuPont, you know, so a, a chum, a colleague, a good old guy, good old boy, who they have every reason to believe is going to do the right thing. Oh, this is just some little, little error that happened. That DuPont, I'm sure we'll figure this out with the EPA. We'll get to the bottom of it and clean this right up. These are good guys. Um, so you do run into them. But it's still so filtered. But but the other challenging part with this story, I have to say, is that Rob is also removed from the true victim, the 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 most extreme victims of this contamination in the six districts, the six water districts that are that are ultimately in the class. And as in the final act of the movie, if you will, when he's waiting for the outcome of the science panel, which ends up taking seven years and is such a personal trial for him, the hardest period of his life, and when he did undergo those physical symptoms that were never sufficiently explained by any doctor. Um, and the, did they go away after? They went away through courses of medication, and they were, I don't, they were described, it was described as a TIA. I, it, it doesn't bear any resemblance to what I understand a TIA to be like. Um but his symptoms have diminished. But the remarkable thing Mark Ruffalo and I just have been talking about amongst ourselves when Rob isn't there is that even the little ticks we would see persisting when we were with him in pre-production and on set have abated. And this, this man, ha- I've been watching this man uncoil in front of my eyes, uh, even while we were shooting the film. To the point where Mark Ruffalo, who assumed that sort of imploded, crouched, almost hunched, you know, very hunched and scowling posture that really was Rob a lot. I started to think when I'd see Rob around us on set and he had this sort of handsome glint in his eye and a smile on his face. I was thinking, is Mark going too far? Is he, is he doing too much? <laughs> and then one day I'm in the Taft offices and we're shooting. And Rob appears, and I didn't know he was coming by that day, and he's just like hunched over with a grimace on his face, skulking down the hallway. And I was like, oh my God, it's, it's, it is Rob. And I said, Rob, hey. And he didn't hear me. And I said, Rob, hey. Didn't hear me. I came right up to him. And I was like, Rob, hi. And he just looked up at me, and he smiled. And he just, again, sort of uncoiled in front of me. <laughs> but it was like, no, that, that really, I was like, okay, Mark's, on, Mark's got it down. Um, and will Rob be doing anything in relation to the movie? What, I mean, you have very, a very political producer. Ca- we do. And, and, and so what's going members. to happen? Rob has been with us through the whole, this whole process so far. And I mean, Amy, this has happened. This whole movie has been such speedy uh, work on everybody's part. Somewhat painfully at times, I have to admit, just because, you know, it's a complicated movie to tell and it was all happening so quickly. How fast did it happen? I mean, Mario and I made our first trip to 
Cincinnati for research. Met all these people. Met Rob, the family, Larry Winter, Jim Tennant, the Kigers, Dr. Brooks, Kimber, Kathleen, the whole, the whole cast, the family. Tom Turp. This was May into... This was the this was early June of 2018. Mario basically rewrote the script in a couple months. We had a draft by midsummer. We were in pre-production in Cincinnati that fall, and we were shooting January, the beginning of January of 2019. That's how fast. Wow. That's pretty fast. And you just finished it. No, we just finished it. So literally, I've only just been, like, I was just in L.A. all last week, and I just saw the very first screening that married our final mix with our DI, our time, color timing, with, you know, <laughs> in an audience, a full house of SAG, you know, nominee people or something, and selected press. And it was at this really crappy theater on Sunset Boulevard called the Harmony Gold, where I've had guild events in the past. And I heard recently they're finally going to tear it down, but it's a nasty, it's really not a great theater. And the film starts, Rob's there, Mark's there, Tim Robbins is there, I'm there with Christine. And the movie starts and it comes out. We had to stop it, turn the lights on. Mark had to tell jokes to the audience while they tried to fix the problem. And they did. The audience was very sweet and responsive to the movie and all that, but it looked like crap. It really looked bad. But we came out at the end. This was the first live q and I've ever done for the movie because <laughs> I'd never seen it before. And we called Rob a lot out last and the whole room stood up and applauded. And I thought he was going to I thought he was fighting back tears. It was an incredibly moving moment. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what are the projects you have going now? Well, <laughs> simultaneous to this one is something you participated in that is a documentary about the Velvet Underground uh, that I, I think I said I would love to do it when Universal Music Group came to us with it in 2017. Uh-huh. We completed all of the interviews, about 20 filmed interviews in 2018. And unfortunately, yours was one of the few I wasn't there for. No, because I came back from Cannes sick and you wanted to do it then and I couldn't couldn't even get out of bed. I missed that. And I missed Ed Lockman because I really wanted Ed Ed shooting me. I know. Even if it never was going to be seen. (laughs) Well, it's totally going to be seen, your stuff in it. I just only saw a cut that Adam Kernitz, who worked with Fonzie, my editor, Fonzo, uh, on the Jim Jarmusch Stooges doc. So uh-huh. they worked in partnership while Fonzie was working with Jim on his feature and finishing that and doing a similar kind of concurrent thing, which I've never really done before myself. Uh, but we've collected the most remarkable archive of material. That's so great. It's really phenomenal. And um, yeah, I'm kind of itching to get you know, through this press process with Dark Waters and get into that, which is so antithetical, so completely a different world and universe. Um, But it's a haunting 
oh my god, engrossing and incredibly and and funny. There's some parts of it that are just hysterically funny. But my goal was really, and I think you knew this as a participant, that I really just wanted to talk to people who were there. Mm-hmm. You know, there are millions of people who can talk about the Velvet Underground, how much that band meant to them, and how much it changed music in the in the years and decades that followed. But I really want. So we started with Jonas Mikas. He was the first interview we did. I think even before John Cale. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad him. we got him. And he was so remarkable and sharp and poignant, of course. Um, he was sharp till a month before he oh, died. It's just... He was sharp only, on mean, the day he died. He was reading and editing. I wow. Mean. It's, he's just... Uh, yeah, just to be in the presence of so many amazing people who are witnesses and participants and... And we got Mo Tucker. We went out to find oh, her. Fantastic. We got her on camera for a long, incredible interview. Mary Warnoff, of course. John Kell, you just can't take your eyes off of. So, uh, so eloquent and so, again, such specific and detailed memory. And so beautiful to watch. And uh, Oh, he's an amazing presence. It's and just such an incredible s- presence. Such an incredible musician. I mean, the music that he's done since. since. And, and his producing yeah. of so many yeah. artists and the relationships he's had with so many artists. Um, so, yeah, it's an incredibly exciting project. Can't wait to get And fully. is it a feature? It's or a feature. Mm-hmm. And it has a theatrical window, which so it'll be seen theatrically, which is great, which and, is very exciting. And who has it? Uh, it's um, Sony Films. And, I mean, uh, uh, is it Sony? Yeah. The new... <laughs> no. Um, um, Apple. Apple. I'm sorry. Apple. Sorry, I yeah. just did a blank. Um, Apple, because it's a brand new company. I don't know these people. I don't know the people in it. There was a little bit of a bidding interest in the project in Cannes. Apple and A24 are, dist- are the distributors. So A24 is the theatrical the and then it's domestic uh, mm-hmm. theatrical distributors. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Sony. Um, but um, Sorry, Sony. Sorry, Sony. But um, and then there's this project that's really been my sort of uh, passion project. And it's about Freud, and uh, it would need to be a multi-part limited series. And so I began structuring it into sort of a 12-part, two-year serial drama. And uh, brought on a writer, Helen Edmondson, and started work started sort of consultations with her, sort of explaining what kind of structure I was thinking about um, at the beginning of 2018. And uh, and then, because I knew I was going to be moving on to be doing a bunch, there was a very busy year with this and Velvet Underground yeah. and the life and times of, of um, Mr. Freud. Um, but yeah, that one... I, I got to get my my head and heart and whole self back into because it requires that. But it's... Um, and is it like episodic television? Well, it's like going to be Pierce? layered, yeah, but not linear. It's mm-hmm. going to be jumping around in time and flashing back from probably 1938, the last year in Vienna. 
but uh, it needs to really um, have a structure and a stylistic versatility and elasticity to really get into the range and really describe what I consider the radical mind um, and work. I'm so glad there's someone else who still does. I, I absolutely so do. And take some, not aim, but putting Jung into some perspective that usually Freud plays second to in our revisionist uh, American perspective, I think, on, on those, on those uh, men. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, remarkable things about his relationships to Fleece and, and Jung that were really structuring um, love affairs in a way, intellectual love affairs that produce so much work. And conflict. We'll get back to it. I really want to say it. <laughs> I can't wait to, have, to be talking about that with you. Well, thank you very much, Todd. Thank you, Amy. It's such a pleasure. Uh, it's really a pleasure, and the movie is just wonderful. Thank you so much. And I mean so much from you. You know, I hope it has huge audiences and changes the world. Thank you. <laughs> Let's hope for nothing less. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.